Hi. Good morning. Ohio, gazaimas. As a student of Scripture and someone who's read through Romans numerous times, when God first saved me and I first started reading the Bible, one of the texts that I went through over and over and over, reading it daily, was Romans. Because Romans is, as Martin Luther puts it, it's a, it's a whole synopsis of the whole text of Scripture in one book. And that's one of the greatest things for me. And it's, it's a book that I keep going back to over and over and over again, not just as someone who abides by the doctrines of grace, but also because it's a, it's a core text for my life. People have life verses. I have Romans. It's really what it comes down to. So let's go ahead and read from Romans 1.14 through Romans 1.17. I know I started, I said in the thing it's going to be 8 forward, but really it's 14. So this is Paul now speaking to the people of Rome, hence the name Romans. I am under obligation both to Greeks and to barbarians, both to the wise and to the foolish. So I am eager to preach the gospel to you through uh, Romans 1.17. I know I started, I said in the nation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greeks. For in it, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith. As it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. Now, in our place. All of this is so that his work on our behalf would apply both to his own. Paul really was leading to the fact that he has a deep obligation. He has something that is bound in him by Jesus the Christ. Christ isn't his last name. It was a title. It was given to him by God as the deliverer of mankind, as the promised one in the Proto-Evangelion way back in Genesis chapter 3. The promised deliverer, that is the Christ, that is our Messiah. This is the one who has given this charge to Paul as he goes out into the world. So speaking to the saints in Rome, he first thanks God for their witness to the world. This is what we saw earlier in the chapter that I didn't read through because it's not really focused on the text. Hi, my first time preaching. We're going to roll forward. But this is how Paul opens his letter to them. He opens with a thankfulness to them, with a thankfulness for their witness to the world because their witness to the world is something that's seen everywhere. They're a small church in Rome. They're not a massive community. They're not, you know, a, a T.D. Jake style, you know, massive cathedral with tons of people there. That's not at all what it is. It's a small community of believers like we have here. This is what they have, but they are faithful witnesses. And this faithful witness is being seen throughout the entire known world at the time. Everything went through Rome. Rome was the center of that entire universe that everybody knew. You would see uh, soldiers come through. There would be uh, politicians who would come from far-flung lands and they would come to Rome so they could deal with the law. And then they would go back home and they would see this witness of this strange community of people who are serving each other, who are serving the weakest among them first, who are taking care of the needs of, of their own church and in so doing, taking care of the needs of everyone else within their community. And they would see this time and again, and Paul is grateful to this 
because it's able, it, it's something that he's able to use to point to the fact of this transformation of the gospel that's happening in their lives. And he looks forward to the time when he's going to be able to be there with them so that he can benefit them by preaching the gospel and preaching the truth of God among them, but also so that they can benefit him. So he can grow from being in their presence and they can build each other up. But he goes to a weird term here. He calls it an obligation. He says he's under obligation to both the Greeks and to barbarians. Now, typically in, in Pauline letters, we see that he says he has obligation to the Jews and the Greeks, right? To the Jews, the ones to whom the gospel first went out, and then also to the Gentiles. It's kind of a weird thing to sit on between those two things, unless you're a student of Scripture, unless you understand that uh, the, the Jews are the, uh, the true people of God. They were the ones whom God reached out to through Abraham, and then through Abraham's seed, it went to Isaac. <laughs> and then to Jacob, who later became known as Israel. It was those people that he made his promises to, that he's going to give them a land, he's going to give them a following, he's going to give them all of these promises that they were going to have. And Abraham never had even a footbreadth within all of the land that he was given, except for a grave. That was it but it was his people to whom it was going to be delivered. These are the true people of God who, to whom this was given. But it's not a genetic. So instead they revolted against him and started attacking him. So his word for them in Romans chapter 9. So instead, what do we see? We see that the gospel is not only given just to the Jews, but now it's also being given to the Greeks to the Gentiles, to the barbarians, to people outside the body of God's people. This is an extremely important thing. Earlier in Acts, we would see that when Paul, when first giving his message to the Jews, they received it with joy. But the second time he came back, there were more people coming. And the ruling class of the Jews at the time got angry. Why? They were jealous. They didn't want to, to, to lose their people. They didn't want to lose their, their influence on society. So instead, they revolted against him and started attacking him. So his word for them is the same word that it is for us today, that I'm going to take this word to the Gentiles. And at that word, the Gentiles rejoice. Because up to then, there was no gospel for them. There was no good news for those people. So Paul's obligation is to the gospel so that he can preach that both to the Greeks and to the barbarians. That is his focus. So let's go on. The thing that he was under obligation to preach to them is the good news of God. In verse 16a, for I am not ashamed of the gospel. Well, what is the gospel? Right? The gospel, the term itself, literally just means good news. Right? It's a synopsis of the truth of Christ's life, death, resurrection, and the impact that he has on the lives and eternal destiny of believers in Christ Jesus. The gospel is not, as some evangelicals demand, a verb, like we must do the gospel. 
Instead, we live in the light of the gospel truth in our lives and how we have been impacted. God, the transcendent creator of the universe, for the sake of his glory and to his praise, became a man, lived as we lived, yet without sin, and died, literally died in our place. All of this is so that his work on our behalf would apply both to his elect, or rather would apply to his elect, as we could never appease God or pay the price of our sins on our own. It's impossible. It's like climbing to the moon on a rope of sand. Now, the term ashamed here, this is another thing that people tend to trip over. I personally tripped over it quite a bit when I was first reading the Bible. Why would he be ashamed of the gospel? What's the point of that? The Jews are the, uh, the true people of God. They were the news. Why? If it's merely just words, then we're just telling people words, right? If it's the work of God in our lives transforming us, well, then why would you be ashamed of that? And it's not that they didn't partake in fellowship with other believers, nor that they had been separated by God from their salvation, but they had become afraid of publicly expressing this to unbelievers, either through fear of rejection or fear of punishment. Ultimately, this rests in the fear of man and not the fear of God. So the fear of God is not merely a reasoned respect, as I've heard numerous times. Oh, well, I just... He's got a lot of power, so I, I understand that. It's not that at all. And you know, as one would fear a father who would never raise a hand against you. God has time and again wiped out whole civilizations. This is the same God who saves us, who loves us this day. He has literally wiped out whole civilizations. This is the same God who killed the entire population of the planet because of rampant unrepentance, less eight people in a boat that was created in a major act of faith. It took well over a hundred years to create that ark. And it was created in a time that largely wouldn't have even seen much rain at all. And yet he's being told that there's going to be a massive flood. That's got to be big enough for a pair of each kind of animal on the earth. And he built this massive ship. A replica of it can be seen in, what is it, Cincinnati? Somewhere around there? Yeah, Tennessee. So you can see how large this ship actually is. And remember, this is built by people who weren't shipbuilders. (laughs) That wasn't their trade. They were just following in faith what God had told them to do. God later all but destroyed the Egyptian economy to rescue his people from slavery and later would wipe out nearly eight nations to give his people a home. Then after 400 years of more unrepentant idolatry, eventually culminating in the sacrifice of human children to appease these false gods, he brought in another nation to strip the land bare and kill them with a threefold destruction of sword, famine, and pestilence. Who was this that he wiped out? Over quite a bit when I was first reading the Bible. Why would he be ashamed of the gospel? What's the point of that? And also into the hand of the Babylonians. This is the same God we serve today. This is the exact same God. He's in a capricious God who changes his whims with the wind, but a God who has stayed steadfast and faithful 
but whose people have repeatedly walked away from Him and His commands to save them for His purpose and to His glory. We also see the power of its gods, except for those of the people of Israel. This is the same God who we serve today. This is a righteous fear of God, knowing that He is God, but that we serve Him by His work in our life and not our own goodness. We serve Him not because we are good people, not because we are the ones who deserve the praise, but because He is the one who deserves the praise because He is the one who has done the work to save us. He knows our struggles. He knows our frame and remembers that we're dust. In Psalm 103, 14, He tells us the same. He knows our limitations and that until we pass through that veil of death, we will continue to sin against Him. But He has chosen to place all of our sins, past, present, and future, on Christ Jesus. He knows our continual failures and instead chooses to accept us and bring us into communion with Him. None of this is required. He doesn't have to do any of these things. This is entirely at His mercy. We continue to live in His world entirely by His grace. God does this of His own free will. Ultimately, though, God is the offended party from our sin. Psalm 51. David, after basically for, for numerous years ruling the people of Israel and doing so well, a man who God said is a man who is after his own heart, he decides to let his army go off and fight instead, something that kings did not do. And he stayed back. And he ended up having an affair with his, well, one of his best friend's wives. Then to cover it up, what does he do? He has him killed. He doesn't do it himself. No, he sends, a, sends the man back to the army with a letter in his hand. He says, give this to your commander. That letter is his death sentence. So he, in faithfulness, goes and hands it to Joab, the ruler of the army. And he says, do whatever is in this hand. So do whatever is uh, come from the king. So he pushes him up to the very worst of the battle and has everyone else pull away from him. In this one moment, he sinned against the entire nation of Israel. He sinned against his friend's wife. He sinned against his own family. He sinned desperately against Uriah, the man whom he killed. But in Psalm 51, who does David say that he sinned against? Against you and you only have I sinned. Why? Because all of our sins against people, they're still sins. But they're not nearly as bad as the sins we commit against our Creator. The one who owns every molecule of oxygen within us. The one who allows us to continue to draw breath. There is no way that we can even have any standing against Him when the depth of our heart constantly wants only to please itself. That's the heart of the original sin. 
Look back in Genesis 3. What, what is being said? Literally asking, will you trust in what God says? Is that, is that literally what he said to you? That, that if you eat of this tree, you'll die? No, 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 no. See, all he wants is he just wants you to not be like him because he is the one who deserves the praise because he is the one who has done the work to save us. And God was the one who determined what was good. Oh no, you can be your own God. That was the promise of the snake. That's the promise of Satan. Pure autonomy. You can be the one who rules it all. We see that same struggle today. We see people today fighting in the streets, literally rioting. Because they want to rule. They want to get rid of authority so that they can be the ones to have decisions made, so they can do whatever they want. Yet people today, as Paul's audience in Rome, are afraid of sharing the good news of what God has done on their behalf. Is this because they don't believe it? They believe it's just words? Possibly. Or maybe they fear retribution from their neighbor more than the God who will, in a moment, burn away all of creation completely so that not even dust will remain, as we read in Second Peter 3, 10-12. That's the end of this creation. Literally none of it will remain. Verse 16b, For it is the power of God, The gospel itself is the power of God. This is the good news that has come in the flesh to redeem men to himself. Well, what is this power of God? In sovereignty. God is creator of all and existing outside the bounds of time, has chosen a point in the time that he created to enter into existence in which he has made mankind, which he crafted for his own glory. In the resurrection of Jesus, we see that God is sovereign also over life, in death itself. As creator of time, he exists outside of it and therefore is not bound by any of these temporal restrictions that limit us, enabling him to act contrary to our understanding over any of it. Job 37.5, God thunders wondrously with his voice. He does great things that none of us can comprehend. Why? Because God exists outside of time. He is time's creator. He is the universe's creator. Somebody builds a house. Are they limited by that house? No. This is our creator God, who again, with a word, created the entire universe. Vast beyond measure. He can do whatever he wants. Why? Because he is sovereign over it. We also see God's power and mercy. God didn't, right? They were terrified of him. But we don't have to recoil of himself for our salvation. God has no obligation to forgive anyone, much less to die in their place. This is unprecedented when you look at the vast number of false gods and idols present in the world. None has sacrificed his position, power, or authority to die in the place of his subjects. This is the mercy of God displayed. And God was the one who determined what was good. 
is the only one who can grant forgiveness. He has, as showcased in his mercy, opted to save some of those, yet leaving others to live their lives as they see fit. If you are saved, it's because God interfered in your plans for your life. God thrust himself into what you were doing to change your mind so that you could hear his word, so you could hear his gospel, and so you could listen to his commands and repent. He violates that self-glorifying autonomy that man craves to transform our hearts and minds so that we can both hear and respond to the good news of the salvation that he has provided for us. He doesn't do this for all as is his sovereign election. He can choose to do with people as he sees fit. But he chooses on behalf of some to change them against their will to save them for his purpose and to his glory. We also see the power of God in judgment. God, by entering into our time and interacting with mankind in the perfect life of Christ, he also in Jesus' condemnation and death on the cross, shows us a firm reminder that death is the result for all who sin and that this judgment is coming for all who are alive. And he shows his, his power in wrath. God's destruction of Jesus on the cross, both the physical toll on his body and the spiritual punishment he endured, reveals to mankind that God's power extends even into the eternal realm. Far after our life has ended, those who are outside of the elect will be punished in eternity. Verse 16c. For salvation to everyone who believes. Salvation from God exists to all who believe. Well, then who's a believer? A believer is one who is given faith to believe. Can man believe in God? Yeah. Satan and all the demons believe in God. They spent time in his presence and cannot deny his existence. Think about every time we've seen in the Gospels where people are preaching, sorry, where Jesus is talking, and what happens? A demon comes up and falls before him in fear and cries out saying, do not send me away before the time. They have full faith in him. They have full knowledge of his authority and his power and who he is. People are just standing there, hanging out with Jesus. And these demons are melting before him, terrified. This is our God. This is our king. This is the kind Jesus that people look to. It's like in Lion, the Witch, in the Wardrobe, talking about Aslan who represents Jesus. Is he safe? Oh no. He's good, but he's not safe. These demons have a better belief. They have a better faith in God's existence and glory than any man who exists today because they have spent time in his presence in a way that we never will until we pass through that veil of death. Therefore, it's not just those who believe in Jesus and his existence, uh, but those who put faith in Jesus and his work on their behalf. Both on the cross to endure their suffering on their 
Uh I read that part already. But also in his perfect life, which is granted to pull away from him. In this one moment, he sinned. Right? They were terrified of him. But we don't have to recoil in fear. God is for us. He is our Savior. Why do we have to run away? Why do we have to recoil in fear? So this belief is not a work that's completed by man to achieve his salvation. Faith is not a verb. Faith is something which is given to us. Faith is something that we absolutely trust in. But faith is still something that is given to us as a gift. God is the one who puts the seed of faith in place. He is the one who waters it by His Holy Spirit and raises it up to the point of conversion. He is the one who maintains it until our consummation with Him in glory. That's John 6, 38-40. So to whom is this given? Verse 16d. That can break one verse into so many slots. To the Jew first and also to the Greek. Again, the Jews, as God's chosen people, through which Jesus would be born, uh, followed the path of faith. We can see that in Romans 9 and Romans 11. Sorry, in Hebrews 11. To the result of God's delivery through Jesus, not for those who are genetic descendants of Abraham, right? You can't just be born into a family and suddenly you're saved. That's not how it works. It might work for kings and glory, but it doesn't work for us here. One of my favorite lines is that God has no grandchildren. Absolutely true. It's not for those, but for those who follow in the faith of Abraham, forsaking all other gods in worship and trusting in God alone to provide and sustain them. That's the Jews to which this was given. And also to the Greeks. The Jews believed that they were the only ones who received grace and mercy from God. They saw themselves as the only ones whom God could ever or would ever love. Why? We're the children of Abraham. Right? Not those dirty Gentiles, not those muggles, not those mudbloods, not, not not even. But this is what God chose to do for his glory. This is not clear at all in Scripture. God revealed himself to Nebuchadnezzar and other kings and rulers, the original inhabitants of Canaan, and to the kings of Syria, even raising up other kings in the nations around the Jews, sometimes to the, to the destruction of the Jews. There were numerous times that God used other kings for his glory to destroy even the Israelites. Now, does that mean that those kings were saved? No. But it means that God was using these same people to do this work on his behalf. It's an amazing thing that God chose to save people who are outside of the Israelites. This is something that none of them knew. None of them even expected this. But this is what God chose to do for His glory. And Isaiah talks about opening up the tents, widening the tents of the Lord to bring in more people. This is exactly what it means. It's not meaning people of other faith, because there's only one faith. One faith in God. And that's what we have. So this is the promise that we have. This is the thing to which he has been called. 
that Paul has been called. This is the obligation that he has now. There are other apostles who are given other groups and other people that they should reach out to. There are some who reached the Jews. There are some who went um, east into Asia. There are some who just stayed within Jerusalem, serving the community of God. But he chose certain apostles to go to certain places to serve certain people. So, but knowing that information, knowing the same obligation, knowing that fear that they have, the same fear that we have within ourselves, right? The same struggles that we have. We have friends who aren't Christians. We have neighbors who aren't Christians. We know the gospel. We know what it has done for us. We know the, the impact that it has on our lives. We know the work of Christ, and we see that daily. We see Him changing our hearts. We can see, looking back in past, at the people who we used to be, knowing full well that, I mean, I wouldn't even like myself today, 20 years ago. Please, a guy who listens to sermons and reads the Bible? Why would I spend time with that guy? But we see that transformation in our lives. We see ourselves year by year being crafted more and more into Christ's likeness. But how do we overcome that fear? How do we win the Israelites? Now, does that mean that those kings were saved? No, not our own. Use this to proclaim to the, to the world what he has done for us. Of Abraham, forsaking all other gods in worship and trusting in God alone. Powerless. Right? They were members of the largest and most powerful nation in the world, commanding both authority and respect simply for their birthright. Because they were members of this community, they could not be arrested or accosted without dire consequences. We saw this when Paul was about to be whipped by the command of a Roman tribune who himself commands much authority and respect, but he stood uncondemned. But we as Christian people and fellow heirs with Christ much have a much greater stance before the world. While we have to deal with temporal issues with our family and our friends, neighbors, workplace proximity associates, and others in the community at large, We serve the God of all creation. I don't serve my local neighborhood. I don't serve my boss. I don't serve any of these things locally. I don't serve my government. I don't serve anything else. I serve my king. He is the one who I serve first. This is the God who is on our side. So at some point, well, a couple of different times in my past, I've been able to to speak to friends about the gospel. And there are certainly some times that I've backed away from that. Because I was afraid of life. That wasn't something he wanted to hear about. But when I saw him back, it transformed me and that it was completely unmistakable all of my friends would see me and realize that I'm a different person. There were a few who stuck around and those, you know, got the benefit of hearing the gospel. 
Some didn't want to hear it. <laughs> but it's still what you do. Now, one of my best friends, he's been a, a friend of mine since high school. He has uh, since joined a biker gang. He is somebody who has, uh, for a very long time, endured the Jesusness of me. He knew me in high school. He was the one who would tell all the great stories to all of his friends. And it was, it was kind of fun to go in with his, his you know, group of bikers and to have them, once he announced who I was, they would go, oh, it's him. But even then, just for them to see how different I was. And he, he still loved me despite this. We didn't talk much about Jesus because we understood that that wasn't part of his life. That wasn't something he wanted to hear about. But when I saw him back just before 4th of July, and my daughter was in town, so we went to go hang out with him again. He related to me his favorite song at the time. And it's this song where a, a group of people are basically saying how much they're looking forward to going to hell. Because hell's going to be great. Hell's going to be a place where they can have their best life now for all eternity. Because they have hearts that are full of murder, hearts that are full of hatred, hearts that are full of all of these things, and they'll finally be celebrated for the people that they are in hell. And it broke my heart. And I told him, this isn't what it is at all. And a few days later, I sent him a message on, on WhatsApp to tell him the same. Like, look, dude, that, that clearly isn't it. And I sent him a screenshot of a Bible. I don't remember what the passage is because I was dumb and I deleted the post. But basically it said that he, that God is the one who's there who can always forgive sin. That there is nothing that you will ever have done so terribly that he won't be able to forgive. Because that was the main thrust of the song is that I've done so many terrible things that no one can ever forgive me for this. I told him that's simply not the case. Four days later, he was shot and killed. That was it. Can't ever talk to him about that again. But despite knowing the fact that I could have lost that friendship, I still pushed on because my God is greater. My God is greater than that friendship. My God is greater than all of these things that we have here today. That is my God, and that is my King. We can't live in fear of man. We have not our own. Use this to proclaim to the, to the world what He has done for us. came to earth who lived and died in our place. We have an obligation to our King who sustains us and keeps us living. Why? We don't need to be here. We can most certainly die right now and go into His presence, but He leaves us here for His glory and for our good.
so we can reach people the same way that he has reached us. To his power alone. We cannot let our fear of man control our fear of God. When we, as did Paul, have an obligation to share what God has done in our lives with those around us. Hell is real. God's judgment is sure. And our duty as soldiers for God and representatives of His power and for the love of His, of his people is to tell those in our sphere of influence about what He has done and to keep telling them until He either returns or takes us home. Lord Jesus, I thank You for this precious gift of time. I thank You for the precious gift of Your Word. And I thank You for the precious gift of friends and neighbors and witnesses around us. I ask that You would please continue to command the hearts of us all, that we would all have strength in Your name and Your power, and that we would all seek opportunities to tell people about all the glory that You have done in our lives and all the things that You've done to prepare us so that we can see You. Save us, Lord. And use Your power to transform our world. It's in Christ's name we all pray. Amen.